You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I love reading stories to kids. And if you're a parent, no doubt you enjoy reading stories to your kids. Or indeed you might remember when others read stories to you. Kids love hearing stories because, one, it engages their imagination. They develop their vocabulary. But more than both those things, they find themselves in an intimate setting, on the couch or in someone's lap, and they imagine themselves, they see themselves almost as part of the story that's being read. Reading a story to kids is more than just telling the story. Emotionally, imaginatively, a lot more is going on for them in that moment. We all live according to stories. Narratives are a way of making sense of our life. There was something before, there's something now, there's something afterwards. Narratives help explain why my parents get angry or why my country is rich or poor. Narratives give us a way of understanding the aspirations, the hopes we have. No wonder we talk about people beginning a new chapter of their lives or turning over a new leaf. Narratives orient us. They give us a sense of security. We work out our place in the world. Now, sometimes that script might be oppressive and might lead to us thinking we should be doing this, though we want to do that. We might rebel. But that just means we create a new narrative, a new story, a new before, now and after for ourselves. We like being part of something bigger and finding our meaning in understanding how all the parts fit together. Now, lots of adults don't read books. I'm amazed by how many of my friends from university days just no longer read. But even adults still watch movies as a way of finding a story to belong to. 
movies in lots of ways are our culture's Bible, where our culture goes to find meaning, orientation, or a sense of belonging. It might not still be the case, but I remember going to Southland to the movies some years ago, and the whole of the movie cinemas in Southland were designed architecturally to look like a temple. There was kind of an Egyptian-styled door, and you go through, and there are all these icons, all these pictures of movie stars as you walk down the big corridor to get to the individual cinema. They were onto something, right? Because they know that Australians go to the movies as a way of finding meaning. Finding meaning, that's better. It's a kind of religious experience. Of course, it's not ritualistic. But it does help us to find a story of which we can be a part A good church service tells stories and helps us find our place, not just in this country, not just in this world, but helps us to find our place in the story of the universe. And the chief story that undergirds the whole storyline of the Bible is the story of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that in the storyline of the Bible, we learn certain things about God, and then after another few books of the Bible, new information is, as it were, released, and we build that into our understanding of God, and then you read a bit further and you discover something more about God. Have you ever noticed that the Bible begins with language of God as creator? And then we learn that God is like a father to his son Israel in Exodus chapter 4. And then we discover that Jesus himself, claiming to be the son of God, represents Israel, the son. And the son, returning to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit upon those who are waiting for power in Jerusalem. The Bible kind of helps us understand the father and understand the Son, and understand the Spirit. And once we've got to the end of the Bible, and we understand what it means that the Spirit has come to us with power, we can look back and we find hints of the Son and the Spirit yet to come in earlier chapters. You might have missed it the first time through, but when you've read the last chapter, the earlier chapters make even more sense. So what's the, the big storyline of the Bible? It's quite simple. The Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. The whole thrust of the Bible story is the Father wanting to glorify the Son, and the Son, in turn, glorifying the Father. That's exactly what That's exactly how Jesus summarizes the storyline of the Bible in John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. 
The big theme of the Bible is the Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. Or if you use slightly different language, say from 1 Corinthians, at the end of time, the Son will give the kingdom to the Father and then the Father will give the church to the Son as his bride. That adds a few extra categories, but it's basically the same storyline. The Father glorifies the Son, and the Son in turn glorifies the Father. Or the Son hands over the kingdom to the Father in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. And the Father turns that kingdom into the bride, gives the church to the Son to be married with forever. And as Christians, we are essentially involved in the story, right? As Christians, we are the kingdom that the son is handing over to the father, or we are the bride that the father hands back to the son. So the storyline of the Bible, the father glorifying the son, the son glorifying the father, is achieved through us. If you want to tell the story of the Bible, you have to tell the story of the Holy Trinity. Our worship is only possible because of the work of the Holy Trinity. Look, for example, at uh, Ephesians 2.18. Ephesians 2.18 runs, For through him, that is through Christ, we both have access, that's both Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit, to the Father. The language of access is the language of worship. The language of access comes from temple imagery, tabernacle imagery. You see in verse chapter 2, verse 18 of Ephesians, we can only worship because we have been given the Son who has sent to us the Spirit through whom we have access to the Father. We need the Trinity to worship. Now, of course, it makes sense, right? We, can't, we don't just come to God under our own steam or by our own efforts or goodness. We can only worship God. We can only participate in the life of God because we are one with Christ. We have been made one with the Spirit. The Trinity is the glorious doctrine that Christians uphold. It's glorious because it says that God runs the world and he's close to us. He's doing both at once. He's running the world and he's caught us up in his own life. He's close. The doctrine of the Trinity isn't trying to make your life intellectually difficult. It's trying to teach us grace, that God is running the world and that we can be close to him at the same time. Some people think that uh, you come to church to plug into God, right? Your battery is powering down from Sunday to Sunday. You've got about 1% charge left so you get to church you plug in for an hour and you find yourself having a hundred percent charge again 
and that the only reason to go to church is just to kind of plug in? No, we're always plugged into God because we're always one with the Son, empowered by the Spirit. We don't come to church to plug in. We come to church to celebrate the fact that we know and enjoy Father, Son and Spirit. Our spirituality is more like a windmill than a battery. A windmill sees the wind blowing gently all the week and the windmill turns, always, as it were, receiving God's breath, God's breeze, keeping us powered up. We don't come to church to plug in. We are plugged in always in Christ by the Spirit. It's really easy to think that the great threat to the Christian church in the West today is the cultural change around us, which has seen a decline in numbers or change in the doctrines of sexuality or persecution. The greatest threat actually to the church in the world today is if we lose the foundation of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's the great foundation on which we build. Without that, we'd be entirely lost. And people, Christians all over the world, are giving up on the doctrine of the Trinity. There are oneness Pentecostal churches which stress God's oneness, not that he's three in one. There are churches all over the world that think the doctrine of the Trinity is so complicated that we best mute it, play it down, not talk about it in our church services, otherwise we might lose numbers or confuse our guests. It's real. And it's the greatest threat that we could ever contemplate. I once sat in a church next to a guy, we were talking afterwards, and he said he was a Christadelphian. A Christadelphians is a kind of sect, and they don't believe that uh, Jesus was divine. I said, why do you like coming here? He said, oh, I love coming here because I can sing all the songs. Think about it. It meant that in the songs at that church, there were no songs about Jesus, the divine Son of God. How appalling. And I quickly told the pastoral team that they need to be more careful about the songs they choose. If people who don't believe that Jesus is God would come to that church because the songs never said that Jesus is God, that's a worry, right? The songs we choose are really important. And the songs we choose need to name God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need the Trinity. We need to understand what it means that we have access through him, through Christ, in one spirit to the Father in order to worship well. And so we need that truth to be expressed in our church services. 
We've just sung some wonderful songs this evening and today about God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But it used to be that Christians thought like this. The first third of the church service should highlight God the Father. And the middle third of the church service should highlight God the Son. And the last third, I suppose that makes it the third third of the church service, should highlight God the Holy Spirit. And lots of traditional services are framed like this, helping us to carry through the story of the Trinity in the course of the church service. All our worship is not trying to get to God. Our worship is responding to God who's made himself accessible through the Son and in the Spirit. Church services should be designed to help you feel assured. Church services shouldn't be designed to make you feel like you're having an intense emotional experience. Church services shouldn't make you feel like you need to perform. Good church services have at their heart an experience of grace, the gift of God to us through his Son and by his Spirit. Good church services help us to know God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But good church services as well help us understand the storyline, the historical storyline of the Bible. Did you notice in Matthew 3, as Matt read it for us, how God, the Holy Spirit, is described? In Matthew 3, 13 to 17, we see Jesus come to John to be baptized. This was different from the kinds of washings that John might have known about previously, because this washing is not self-administered. Jesus needs someone else to do it, right? There were many kinds of religious groups where people were expected to wash themselves. Did you notice how Jesus insisted that John had to do it for him? This is an unusual kind of washing. It's not to be repeated. And this is a kind of washing that's not about ceremonial defilement. This is a really strange new thing. When Jesus was baptised, it says in verse 16, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Son is baptised. The Spirit descends to anoint him. And the Father speaks. This beautiful paragraph speaks of the doctrine of the Trinity. But this paragraph also summarises the storyline of the Bible. 
For in this paragraph where Jesus is baptized is the Jordan River. You probably know about the Jordan River. The people of Israel in the Old Testament had to cross through the Jordan River on their way to the Promised Land. God held up the waters of the Jordan so they could cross through. Jesus is deliberately being baptized in the Jordan where God's people Israel had once passed through. He's being baptized by someone who dressed like the prophet Elijah. The skies are split in two, much like it was promised, the skies would be split in two at the end of the world. The Spirit comes, as Joel had suggested it would at the end of the world. Like in Psalm 2, the Father's voice speaks about who the ruler of the world is. And then Jesus, after being baptised, goes out for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, just as the people of God in the Old Testament had been Can you see that this is a story about God, the Holy Trinity, but it's also a story about Israel's story. Jesus is washed and then anointed. He's washed in the water and then the Spirit descends. Aaron, the high priest in the Old Testament, is washed, then anointed in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8. Jesus, as it were, in this moment, is becoming the new high priest of Israel. The high priest of Israel's job was to lead Israel in worship. Jesus is now presenting himself as the leader of our worship. We cannot worship without him. The Son of Man... The Son of God in Matthew chapters 3 and 4 is repeating the whole story of Israel. He's becoming a part of the story of Israel. The story of Israel is impressing itself on him. So that when we get to Matthew 28, we read those famous verses, the Great Commission, we should be connecting Matthew 28 with Matthew 3, reading from Matthew 28. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them all, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He's the King of kings. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The baptism which Jesus had experienced is now part of the discipleship of every Christian. We have to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've, our ownership has been transferred. We used to belong to ourselves or to the devil, but now we're baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. He owns us now. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Jesus 
in being baptized is placing himself in the story of Israel in a really dramatic way. And us being baptized places us in the story of Israel too, or in the story of Jesus, who is summarizing the story of Israel. How extraordinary. This passage teaches us about the story of worship from the Old Testament to the New. And we are a part of this grand story. We're part of Israel now. We are part of God's people. And we rehearse our part every week when we hear the scriptures read or the sermon preached, when we sing songs or participate in the sacraments or join our supplications to the people up the front. What is worship? Why do we come together on Sundays? It's a party. God the Holy Trinity is the host, and we are the guests invited to share fellowship with him now and forever. There's nothing more to worship than wasting your time with God. It's a celebration. We don't have to achieve anything. We can just enjoy him and enjoy each other. Tim Costello, whom you might have seen on TV, has been an active campaigner against gambling in Victoria and Australia. He used to be the pastor of St Kilda Baptist Church in years gone by. And there was this tension in his church between the middle-class folk and the poorer folk who came along. This is what the middle-class folk used to say. We hate it when the poorer folk in the congregation waste their money on parties. Surely they should be doing something kind of good with their money, right? Like saving up for their retirement or something like that. Surely the poor are just wasting the resources that we're giving to them. But Tim Costello would push back against those middle-class voices and say, isn't it wonderful that they're just enjoying each other's company? They're just enjoying being together. They're just enjoying the good gifts that they have today, even though they might not have some of those good gifts tomorrow we don't have to do anything tonight or in our worship Sunday by Sunday than enjoy God and the part he's given to us to participate in his life but there's a, another element to our worship it's not just telling the story of the Trinity or the story of Israel. In a way, I'm joining my individual story to the story of Israel or to the story of God. We're participants in the big story, but we have our own story as well. And it's wonderful for us to be able to tell our own story. You might remember the movie The King's Speech with the Australian speech pathologist who's advising King George VI how to get over his stammering. 
But one of the significant turning points in the, mo in the movie is when this upstart Australian speaking to the King of England demands of the king that he tell the story of his growing up. And as the king, it's a true story, as the king recounts his young years and finds his voice to explain who he is or the challenges he's faced, he finds at the same time that he gets through his stammering and can speak more confidently and earn his nation's trust. We need to learn to tell our story. And you might find that in learning to tell your own story, you feel more confident amongst the people of God. And of course, God has plans for all of us and for his will. But how I've joined myself to the people of God is worth hearing. It's unique to you. It's wonderful when in church services we can hear people's story, their testimony, as we've done this weekend, listening to the Bible readers and how they've become Christians. It used to be something we did quite often in church services, but I think in the last 20, 30 years we don't tell our testimonies quite as often as once we did. We don't want to lose ourselves in worship as if our individual, individuality doesn't matter, swallowed up in the divine like into a black hole. But in telling our story, we actually find that we become more and more alive, valued just as we are, with the very details of our story that no one else can share. Our culture is really pragmatic. We just want to get things done. But worship is just celebrating the story that we are part of, even if nothing else gets done. Seeing the person next to you in your seats, not as a strategy for achieving some ends, but just as a human being like you, who has dignity, worth, an agency just because they belong to God. In church, in worship, we learn our lines. We learn our roles as part of God's divine plan. And in learning our roles, we recognize that we're the creature, not the creator. In learning our roles, we recognize that what it means to come into God's presence and hear from him and ask him for things. In learning our roles, we might have to do some repetition to make sure that the role we play is deeply embedded in our hearts and in our minds. Worship helps us to be the people we were created to be, connected to God through his Son, and by his spirit. Worship helps put us back together again. Our world fractures us and fragments us. But in worship, we can integrate again our heart with our mind and our soul before the face of God. Listen to this wonderful quotation summarizing what worship is by William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury 
in the Second World War. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It's the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of our mind with his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of our hearts to his love, and the surrender of the will to his purpose. Isn't that fantastic? In worship, every part of me is addressed. And in worship, every part of me finds its rightful place before the Lord. Our culture fragments our lives. Our worship reintegrates them. Worship is where the renewal of the world starts. But worship is also where renewal of the world ends. Worship is heaven brought forward. Worship is a taste of the next world in this world. Worship is us practicing, getting ready for that day when we shall be perfect. Worship is the dress rehearsal for heaven. Worship is teaching us our lines so we know what part we play in God's grand plans. Worship's the place where we learn to think about justice, not pleasure. And we learn to think about freedom, not slavery. Where we learn to practice generosity, not meanness. Where we learn to wait, not expecting everything to come immediately, just when we want it. I hope you've seen this weekend that church services, our weekly worship, are layer upon layer upon layer of theology. We don't just have a song because it's good to do it while people turn up late. We don't just have a sermon because someone around likes talking a lot. We don't just say prayers because you didn't get round to them for yourself in the week. Worship is full of theological layers. It's an extraordinary gift from God for our good, for our good and for his glory. On Sundays, we can practice worshipping like we will do forever. Heaven is certainly rest from striving but it's not rest from serving worship is being centered on the life of God being satisfied in the life of God both now and forever worship is a compass to orient us a throne room to train us a gym to help us practice the spiritual disciplines and it's kind of like a party where we can celebrate each week. So friends, in anticipation of that great day when we shall be worshipping him forever, let's say together out loud Revelation 15, 1 to 4. Together, 
I saw in heaven another great and marvellous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what it looked like a sea of glass, glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. True and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen.